a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that is especially for people who are earnestly involved in trying to hang on to their sanities, trying to trying to stay connected to reality. And thankfully, I've invited my good friend Eric Peters to join us because he brings a reality supplement every time he comes on the show. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty good. I've been watching old interviews that G. Edward Griffin had with Yuri Bezmenov. Did you ever watch those back in the day? I have seen them, yes. Every, and they were very interesting. For you the know, sake of for people those who are listening... For those who don't know who Yuri Bezmenov was, tell tell us about him. Yeah, he was formerly a KGB operative in the Soviet Union who defected to the, the United States. And his job when he was in the Soviet Union was to demoralize people uh, in order to make them more receptive to the communist ideology. He went, uh, he went at great length to explain the technique of that. And I think it's apt for our discussion today because that's exactly what's happening. You and I talked a little bit off the air about what's going on in Shanghai and uh, what may soon be going on here uh, in that people are being driven literally out of their minds to the point they're jumping out of the window because they can't take it anymore because of this mass insanity, masked insanity, and chaos that's being foisted upon the population of the entire world. Yeah, I want to believe that the COVID mania is over. I mean, after all, we've got the the next thing, right, with Ukraine. That's where everybody's attention is. But it sounds like it's slowly creeping back in, and in this case, China is locking it down hard. Uh, didn't you mention Philadelphia now is reinstating the indoor mask mandate? They did, and it's back to the same old, same old. There is an unelected bureaucrat, uh, I can't remember the woman's name, but she, on her own authority, has decreed this uh, once again, beginning on the 19th, because after all, the virus will just wait until the 19th. Uh, people must mask again in order to go indoors anywhere. And meanwhile, uh, the federal government, Biden, is about to rescind Title uh, 42, which was the policy under the Orange Man, whereby foreign nationals entering the country illegal from places that had problems with communicable, communicable diseases would be sent back to their country of origin. But now that's going to be taken down, and the, the, the border is essentially going to be opened up to a, su- a human tsunami of potentially millions of people. They don't have to wear the face diaper. Uh, they don't have to present evidence of having been jabbed. Come on down. But if you're an American citizen, if you live in Philadelphia, you've got to wear the face diaper. And if you're an American citizen and you want to fly in an airplane, you got to wear the face diaper. Wow. Well, I've drawn my line. I know you've drawn your line. Um, you know, I, I guess at, at this point, what good does it do to argue with, with those who are, are still under that spell of, well, we got to do something, you know, to stop COVID? It doesn't do any good to argue with them, and I, I don't think it ever did, really. Uh, I think what we have to do is say no, period. Not going to tolerate it, not going to abide it, not going to play along with it. Sorry, uh, these unelected bureaucrats simply don't have the, uh, the legal or the moral authority to just dictate to us that we have to perform various rites of kabuki, particularly when at the very same time these same people, the same class of people, are flooding the country with illegal aliens, I'm using the politically incorrect term, not migrants, not refugees, illegal aliens, uh, who are subject to absolutely no kabuki whatsoever, which tells you it has got nothing to do with stopping the spread. It's got everything to do with what Desmanov said back in the 80s 
which is to demoralize the country, to instill chaos for the purpose of, of making the people anxious and vulnerable, vulnerable to being controlled. Yeah, I at this point, I have made up my mind that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to reach the, the, the people who are still scared and looking for a reason to believe that what government is telling us is the way to go. I'm just trying to encourage the people who have have solidified their backbones and decided I go no further. I've drawn my line and I'm not going to be budged. And I want to remind them you're not alone. Yeah, that's extremely important. And for people who um, who live in places like Philadelphia, you know, my uh, my suggestion to them is that they simply refuse. If enough people do it, that's been uh, the case since the beginning. If enough people simply say no, it becomes unenforceable. They rely on mass voluntary obedience and compliance with this stuff. They're not going to be able to station a cop in front of every store uh, and, and, and require that you put on a mask or be dragged to jail. So that's the key to ending all of this. Uh, we get exactly as much tyranny as we're willing to tolerate. Well, and it seems like the, the pressure is being ramped up to, to bring us to heal. And I know for some people this is going to sound conspiratorial, but, you know, the Great Reset has, has really been out in the open, actually, for several years. At least the World Economic Forum and, and those associated with it have been talking about this for some time. But it seems like they are supporting policies and they have people in place in various governments around the world supporting policies that are definitely shoehorning us into a place where, man, fuel costs are outrageous, food costs are getting outrageous, and it doesn't look like any of this is going to improve anytime soon. Well, no, not at all. And it's hardly conspiratorial when it is this much in your face and out in the open. They're not even uh, making an attempt any longer to deny it. They're not couching what they say in euphemistic language. They're saying it very directly. And it's, it's manifestly obvious to anybody that this is what's going on. There's, there is an attempt to, I like this word, insert the population to, uh, to, to, to make it such that it is uh, in an economically precarious position. And not enough money, not enough food. Uh, you're worried about how you're going to put fuel in your vehicle. Uh, all of this serves to terrify people, you know, and, and, and make them more amenable, once again, to this business of being controlled by a government that says, well, you know, if you're a good, obedient person and you do exactly what we say, we're going to give you your gruel, your stipend. And it's based on that feudal model. You know, go back in history and read about what, what life was like in Europe in the Middle Ages, where most people were peasants and serfs, and they were on the, 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 on the sufferance of the Lord on his land. And the Lord might allow them to live there, provided that they gave him two-thirds of everything they produced, but anything could be taken away from them at any time by the Lord. That's what this WEF thing is all about. It's about reinstituting a kind of feudalism in a technological and modern society. Wow. So I have to ask your opinion on this, Eric. I'm sure you're, you're catching the stories that are starting to come forward about fertilizer shortages, uh, uh, a shortage of crops being planted this year. Um, how seriously are you taking some of the talk about uh, about food shortages or, or perhaps even famine in some countries? Well, I'm taking it very seriously because what's going on right now is extraordinarily serious. Uh, we're already paying more than twice as much as we did a year ago for gas. The price of food is going through the roof, and we're very close now, even officially, to double-digit inflation. You know, the, the, the published number that the government concedes is, what, about 8%, I think it is? Uh, if, and if you look at the way it used to be measured before they jiggered the way things are measured, uh, it's already in the double digits. But once you get to that point, things start to get rapidly out of control. If people are starting to have to pay 20%, 30% more uh, from week to week for uh, food, it becomes untenable. You simply can't live anymore. People can't 
they can't uh, indebt themselves out of that problem. You can't just figure out, well, I'm going to withdraw some of my savings or uh, I'm going to I'm going to tighten my belt. At a certain point, you no longer can afford to eat. You no longer can afford to go to work. Uh, it no longer makes any sense to go to work because you're not making enough money to pay for anything. And at that point, civilization falls apart and it's very dangerous and it's extremely likely given what's going on already and what's likely to come given this business in Ukraine. You know, a lot of people don't understand the impact of that uh, upon, for example, fertilizer prices on food prices. Uh, the Ukraine is the wheat basket of Europe and that is going to affect the world price of food dramatically. And, you know, it may not happen right here, right away, but I think by next year, this time, it could potentially be catastrophic, and people should think about this and take steps to prepare for it. Somebody pointed this out to me yesterday, and it sent a little chill up my spine. The food that we're buying today in the grocery stores, a lot of the, especially the prepared food products, this is from stuff that was planted, harvested, and processed last year. And if, exactly. if, if there is a very limited planting season, or for that matter, if there are crops not going in the ground this year, starting this fall, we're going to start to see legit food shortages and and that's not something you overcome with, well, we'll just step up, you know, the shifts at the factory. It doesn't work that way. Once you get behind, catching up is very difficult. Right. And keep in mind, too, that it is a double tap. It's not just that there's less food so that there's a physical scarcity, which would drive up prices all by itself. In addition to that, you've got the compounding problem of the value of money, or rather the purchasing power of money, uh, declining on an almost daily basis. So even if there were not potential for food shortages. Uh, we're rapidly getting to the point where people are beginning to think, well, I can't afford to meat. You know, I can't afford to buy steaks anymore. And then uh, a month from now, maybe they're not going to be able to afford oatmeal and cereal anymore. And then another couple of months go by and they can't afford that. And that's when starvation sets in. And when that happens, civilization comes unglued. Okay, we got about uh, got about thirty seconds here, but let's let's talk a couple common mm-hmm. sense things people can do to better their situation right now. Well, I think the immediate thing, and you and I've talked about this uh, many times in the past, is to take your depreciating dollars and convert them into durable, valuable things that are under your control. Whether that happens to be food, whether it happens to be ammunition, whether it happens to be needful supplies for your particular situation, any of that is a kind of a hedge. It's a way. To, uh, to snatch away the ability of these, these these bankers and these cartels to take away your your money, you know, and that's an important thing to do. Okay, great place to end this segment. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. And I do have a link to his website in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric, I saw an article that you had published recently about the wagon that's not for the Volk anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's, yep. let's talk about what's happening with Volkswagen. Well, uh, a couple of days ago, Volkswagen announced that it would be canceling about 60% of the models that it currently produces. Uh, all of them happening to be the affordable vehicles that don't have electric drivetrains in favor of becoming a premium manufacturer of electric cars. So it's interesting in that Volkswagen literally means people's car. And the whole uh, mission statement of Volkswagen from the 30s to you know last week 
was to provide cars for average people at a price that average people could afford. And this announcement uh, suggests to me that perhaps Volkswagen should consider changing its name to the Herrenvolk wagon. And that term is German for, you know, the master race uh, for the, the people who can afford to spend forty and $50,000 and more uh, on a premium electric car. Now, one of the things about this that's especially striking and interesting to me is that it's a kind of uh, elliptical admission by Volkswagen that electric cars simply can't be made and sold at a profit for average people at a price that they can afford. The only way this works is to sell exclusive high-end cars. And of course, that means that only exclusive high-end people will be able to afford cars in the future. And that gets us back to this whole WEF thing. Wow. There was, there was a word, actually, that you introduced me to that, that stands for those high-end people. What was it again? The, the Herrenvolk. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Is that a word that uh, the Germans should be tossing around at this point? It seems like that might have some negative connotations. Uh, yeah, I can think so. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's of a piece with so much uh, that the world turned upside down today, you know, in, in, in our time that the company that specifically was all about affordable transportation is now focusing uh, on unaffordable transportation. And they, they actually said that the goal is not, is not growth anymore. Their, their goal is simply to make a relatively small handful of high-end vehicles that only a very few people can afford. And that's what people need to understand about this electrification agenda. Uh, at the end of the day, ultimately, these vehicles are expensive. They're much more expensive than non-electric cars. You know, you're talking about minimum price entry point of 30 something thousand dollars. And even that is kind of dishonest because if you dig into it a little, you find out that's for the model with a really low performance battery that can only go maybe 150 miles or so. And if you want to go farther than that, you have to pony up even more. So now you're looking at $40,000. Uh, that's the price of Volkswagen's ID4, for example. Uh, that's one of their electric vehicles. And isn't that great? You know, so now you're supposed to spend twice as much on a vehicle with money that's worth a third less uh, in, in order to save $4 a gallon, not have to spend $4 a gallon on gas, it almost ties your mind into a pretzel and makes you want to crawl under a rock and wait for 20 years and come out and hope times are better then. Yeah, it's well, it's, it's making me very, um, how can I put this, attached to my gas-guzzling cars. I, I'll stick with my gas burners. Yeah, no kidding. I, I just don't want to be moved into, into the... Uh, into the so-called clean energy. And, and I think you've been one of the people who's been very instrumental in, in helping me recognize what we refer to as clean energy is not as clean as, as uh, just the end result of, oh, you're driving an electric car, look at what you're doing for the environment. Nobody's talking about where that, what's, what's generating that electricity, where the, the basic minerals you know, to make the batteries for that electric car are coming from. I mean, it's, it's not exactly the most environmentally friendly enterprise on either one of those counts. No, it's not. And, you know, even if we accept for the moment, for the sake of discussion, that these so-called clean vehicles are necessary, it becomes a talking point, an academic thing, if people can't afford it. That's the bottom line. You can talk about all the wonderful things that you would like to have. In fact, I'd like to have uh, triple-pane Anderson windows throughout my house. You know, they're more efficient than the windows that I've got. But I can't afford to spend twenty grand on windows. And, you know, most people cannot afford to spend forty or $50,000 on an electric car. That's the bottom line. So what do you deduce from that? You deduce that the ultimate agenda here is to deprive the average American, the working American, the middle-class American, the working-class American from owning a car and to turn this country into, here we go, the Soviet Union, where only the elites got to own personal cars and the proletariat, that's us, 
uh, gets to walk, bicycle, or take the bus. Wow. No, I, I see it. I mean, I, I see it shaping up right in front of our eyes. All right, let me let me shift gears here a little bit. I want to talk about cars for a moment. I noticed you uh, recently had written up a review on the uh, Ford Bronco, the new Bronco. Yeah. Um, let's let's get the good, the bad, and the ugly about this vehicle. I know it was very anticipated. Well, there's a lot of good. Now, the Bronco, the, the revival of the Bronco, I should say, people who know vehicles will know that the Bronco was first uh, brought out in 65, 66. It was very popular as a, a rugged 4x4, long before anybody had ever heard of an SUV. And, uh, you know, it had been missed, been off the market for a while, and uh, Ford decided to resuscitate it and bring it back. Now, they did that uh, back in, you know, around, I don't know, 2016, 2017 or so, when Orange Man bad, and gas prices were, you know, two bucks a gallon or so. It took them that long to get the thing out into production. First year was 2021. The one I wrote, and wrote about recently is 2022. And like the original, it's a great off-roader, very capable, very powerful, also very thirsty, and that's the problem. Even though it is relatively affordable, you can pick one up for about 29000 bucks, and it has a manual transmission, which is great. Mm. The problem is uh, it costs at current prices about 75 to $85 to fill the tank up, and it's getting to the point where the gas bill, the monthly gas bill approaches your car payment, and you know that's what they want. They're trying to choke off these vehicles by, by making them so expensive to use that people can't afford to buy them anymore. Gads, I I just I hate how regulation is being used to to basically uh, straight jacket us and and uh, deprive us of choice as well as mobility. Yeah, me too. I think the take home point here people should um, should always bear in mind is that all of this is entirely artificial. There is no shortage of gas. Gas is abundant. There's no reason, no natural reason why we we shouldn't be paying about two bucks a gallon for gas. The reason that we're paying more than four bucks a gallon for gas is because of artificial reasons, artificially induced scarcity uh, that is a part of a deliberate policy to make uh, vehicles that use gas substantially more expensive in order to cattle prod people into these electric cars. Well, I'm grateful for voices like yours that uh, that can offer a counterpoint to all the voices out there saying, "Ooh, ah, you know, this is this is the way to go." Any other cars that uh, you have uh, test driven recently that uh, seem worthy of mention? Oh, without question. Yeah, I had a Mitsubishi Mirage, and you may not be familiar with it. A lot of people may not even know that Mitsubishi is still in this market, but Mitsubishi sells a very sensible little car, the Mirage that you can pick up for just over $14,000 Wow! that will go more than, more than 40 miles uh, a gallon of, on, a, on a gallon of gas on the highway. That's the way you deal with $4 a gas, a $4 a gallon gas, not per Pete Buttigieg uh, by going out and blowing $40,000 on an electric car. Uh, so if you're in the market for a new car and you want something that's very fuel efficient and very affordable, uh, that Mirage uh, is a car that you should be looking at. Now, what what are you giving up in terms of horsepower? I mean, technology's come a ways. Are you mm-hmm. are, are are you going to be you know stuck feeling like you've got a gerbil powering the car? Well, you know everything's relative. You know, it absolutely is not quick relative to other modern cars. It has a I'm just pulling this out of my head. I think it's a seventy six horsepower engine, uh, but it gets to sixty in about ten eleven seconds. Now, mm-hmm. that's not ultra speedy, but it's about the same speed as a Toyota Prius hybrid for about $10,000 less than the cost of a Prius hybrid. And it's twice as quick as a Beetle was back in the 70s. You know, you probably remember what Beetles were like. Oh, yeah. It took about 30 seconds to get to 60. <laughs> and, 
you know, and the fact of the matter is, I, you know, I, I comment on this often. When you go out and drive, you find you see all these people in their high-powered vehicles, barely doing the speed limit, and oftentimes below the speed limit. And if you're somebody who actually participates in the act of driving, you can end up getting, you know, going around these people uh, quite adroitly in a little car like that, which has a manual transmission, if you know how to drive. Uh, and the other take-home point, too, is it's not like economy cars were in the past when they were very crude and very primitive. And you were lucky if you got a heater, and in the Volkswagen, the heater didn't kill you from carbon monoxide. This thing has climate control air conditioning. You know, it's got every power option. It's got a good four-speaker stereo. You're not suffering by driving the thing at all. All right, here's where we got to stop. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest. Sure. All right, I've got a link to the Eric Peters, uh, ericpeters.com, ericpetersautos.com. It's in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are hearing my program anywhere within either the state of Utah or Idaho, which uh, surprisingly, not surprisingly, I should say, are uh, destinations of choice for a lot of people who are moving out of areas where, shall we say, things are less free, well, first of all, welcome to the Islands of Freedom, <laughs> that, such as they are. And if you're looking for a home, please get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and let her do the legwork to get you the loan that you need, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Heather has the experience, and we're talking decades of experience, and the stability and the clout to get you the loan you need quickly. And it's important you get it quickly because it's a very competitive real estate market right now. You can call her at 435-703-4522. You can check her out online. I have a link in my show notes for her email. You can actually connect with her that way. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I always have loved Alexander Solzhenitsyn's approach to life, which is, look, you know, you're not going to eradicate evil all by yourself. It's, it's impossible to fully... You know, take evil out of the world. But the one thing that you and I can do is prevent evil, more evil, I should say, from entering the world through us. And I was thinking of this when I read Barry Brownstein's latest article. This is part two of a terrific two-part series on taming the dictator within. It's one of those great lessons about how if, you, if you're serious about improving the world, you got to start by improving yourself. And I thought this was... They're, they're both wonderful essays, but I wanted to share this one with you just for the sake of it's, it contains some fabulous lessons on how to stay resilient, how to avoid becoming fodder for authoritarian social and political movements. And no matter how rational you and I may think we are, well, I know what's going on. I, I'm not going to be fooled. We're actually fooling ourselves when we say that. I guess the point here is none of us are above slipping into dictator mode. We have to be on guard for it all the time. Barry Brownstein asks, how can we stay resilient and and avoid becoming fodder for authoritarian social and political movements as the economy declines and the social mood becomes more polarizing? Now, he says, we will all wish for different circumstances. But as the stoic philosopher Seneca advised, if you really want to escape the things that harass you, what you're needing is not to be in a different place, but to be a different person. So to ask the question another way, how could a person with an overactive dictator within, and he has a link to part one of this essay right there, be a devoted advocate for liberty? 
Since they treat their own lives as something to be controlled, would they not have sympathy for the idea that society should be administered? A mindset promoting rigid problem-solving formulations is not easily turned on and off. He says, if you interact with a person who's eminently confident in his rational thinking process, run far away and fast. Robert Heinlein wrote, man is not a rational animal. He is a rationalizing animal. And if someone's determined not to change, he can use reason to rationalize why he's the way he is. He'll choose from a grab bag of external causes to justify his personal choices, his upbringing, his education, his job, his partner, society, etc., People like this reverse causation, seeing themselves as the effect of external circumstances. For them, reason has reversed causation. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, if we're determined to blame, we lose sight that individuals first choose their purpose and then adopt their way of being in the world to reach their goals. Now, he says, notice when your mind confuses cause and effect in your personal life. Watch your mind rationalize your feelings. As the late author Michael Crichton observed, wet streets do not cause rain. Other people don't cause us to be angry. That angry response to another person reveals an angry predisposition we already carry within us. Relationships don't create grievances. Grievances reveal a mindset looking for evidence that life is not fair. We construct our self-concept. And because it is a construction, we rationalize our self-concept by feeding and defending it with our thought-based stories. Now, when we reinforce our concept with an outside-in narrative, we're shifting blame for our feelings onto someone or something else. A story that reverses cause and effect relieves us of responsibility since we see ourselves as the effect of external forces. Now, he writes, this rationalizing mindset on the personal level is what supports collectivists who are determined to use coercive central planning to achieve their ends. Collectivists deploy deploy wet streets cause rain thinking. They chant, greedy food and energy suppliers cause inflation. Oh, Elizabeth Warren, (laughs) that sounds a lot like her, doesn't it? Barry Brownstein says, government spending on infrastructure reduces inflation. Who was doing that? That was was Nancy Pelosi, I believe. Well, Michael Crichton coined what he called the gel man amnesia effect. The tendency we have to give unwarranted credibility to those in the media who have already proven themselves wrong. The gel man amnesia effect, named after Nobel, uh, the Nobel laureate in physics, Murray Gell Mann, applies on a personal level, too. The dictator within, the inner expert narrator Hayes describes, tells us who and what to blame. We mindlessly take its bad advice as sound guidance, even when it has proven to be misguided time and time again. And so he says, don't be fooled by the sheer volume of noise coming from your dictator within. Crichton writes, quote, sheer volume comes to imply a value which is specious. I call this the there must be a pony effect from the old joke in which a kid comes down Christmas morning, finds the room filled with horse crap and claps his hands with delight. His astonished parents ask, why are you so happy? He says, with this much horse crap, there has to be a pony. End quote. See, we want to be fooled because we want to eschew responsibility. In his seminal book on mass movements, The True Believer, Eric Hoffer cautions there is in us a tendency to locate the shaping forces of our existence outside ourselves. The tendency to look for all causes outside ourselves persists even when it's clear that our state of being is the product of personal qualities such as ability, character, appearance, health, and so on. 
Now, Barry Brownstein says when we become aware of an outside-in tendency in our own thinking, we can become more aware of the voice of our dictator within, narrating our story of me, hijacking our self-concept. We can choose to defuse from our inner dictator. But he says this first step is challenging. In his book, A Liberated Mind, Hayes writes, what is so potentially dangerous about the power this voice can have over us is that we lose contact with the fact that we're even listening to a voice. And he adds, quote, the dictation is so constant and seamless that we disappear into the voice. We identify with it or fuse with it. If we were pushed to say where that voice comes from, it would be natural for us to consider the dictator to be our voice, our thoughts, or even our true self. This is why we call this voice the ego, which is just Latin for I. But it is really the story of I. It becomes so entangling that we take its dictates literally. End quote. Now, after his own struggle with anxiety, Hayes relates that he had let the voice take the place of the part of me that is aware and can choose. I had disappeared for years on end into my own mind and its dictates. Hayes questioned the relevance of thoughts coming from his dictator within. Here's what he said, quote, I realized that what the voice was telling me did not necessarily have any more weight than any of the other thoughts that raced through my mind. I did not have to buy into them. Thoughts flit in and out of our awareness automatically all the time, like I'm getting hungry, maybe I'll get some ice cream, or I hope the laundry is done. Some thoughts that are off base also pop into our minds, like thinking someone is staring at us who isn't even paying us attention. Memories suddenly resurface for no apparent reason. Now, Hayes continues to describe this diffusing process. When we, or while we tend to think of our thought processes as logical, many of them are anything but. Thoughts are constantly being generated automatically and mindlessly. We cannot pick up, or we cannot pick which ones pop up, but we can pick and choose which of them to focus on or to use to guide our behavior. End quote. I like the example that Barry Brownstein uses here. He says, a thought of irritation about my wife can quickly turn into, I'm grateful for my wife when I pause to observe my thought of irritation and don't justify and solidify that thought. And what he's advocating here is, okay, so these thoughts pop into our brains, but we may not be able to control the thoughts as they pop up, but we can make a practice of observing them, and in that pause, we can change our mindset. His point is that thoughts are fluid until, unless we grab hold of them. Your experience of life, he says, will be very different when you practice non-judgmental observation of your thoughts and allow them to pass by. This form of intentional observation is far more valuable and effective at overcoming unhappy thoughts than exhortations of snap out of it or stop feeling sorry for yourself or soothing mantras of you don't need to worry. Research shows that attempting to suppress unwarranted or unwanted thoughts rather only leads to more unwanted thoughts. Now, he says, when we're ready to declare our freedom from the dictator within, we'll begin by acknowledging F.A. Hayek's admonitions about false individualism and, and acknowledging they, they apply to us. You know, right? We're the ones who think we get it. <laughs> Nobody else does. But sometimes we don't. Barry Brownstein says we can stop pretending to be eminently confident in our rational thinking. We can loosen the grip our thinking has on us by pausing to observe and not fuse with our dictator within. We can allow true individualism to lead to lead us to meaningful lives with a greater sense of purpose, better relationships, and genuine happiness. This is an essay well worth your time. I wouldn't read it just once. I'd actually read it a couple of times. It's a great lessons here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. Just actually talked to a friend last night who had uh, just gone to Dixie Chiropractic, said it was a great experience. And if you are listening in uh, southern Utah, well, it's right there. Why not take advantage? You can go to their website, DixieChiro.com, to learn more. In particular, there are several groups of people, three groups of people, that I really want to make sure are hearing this message. And that is anyone who is dealing with car accident injuries, reach out to Dixie Chiropractic. If you're dealing with uh, herniated discs or bulging discs, you know how crippling that can be? Check out their $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage. Just get in touch with his office. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, check out the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieChiro.com. When you're making the appointment, when you're, when you're talking to them, please mention that you are visiting with them because you heard me talking about them on this program. It would mean a lot to me, and it would mean a lot to them to know that their message reached you. I know I beat this drum. Sometimes I think I beat it a little too much, but it's it's telling that the people who these days are most outspoken about tolerance tend to be the most intolerant people among us. And I think the best definition I've heard of, of wokeness, for instance, is people who are experts at spotting injustice in everyone except themselves. Yeah, it sure seems that way. Unfortunately, if we spend too much time focusing on their injustice, we kind of become obsessed in the same sense that they do. Daniel Laddier has a great explanation of how fixating on one virtue can actually cause us to abandon other virtues. I thought this was really a, a great way to describe this. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. Why so many tolerant people are actually intolerant. Daniel Laddier says... It's become common to point out that those who most preach tolerance are themselves often highly intolerant. But why is that? As University of Texas professor and ethics expert Jay Budzisiewski explains it, it may have a lot to do with tolerance's character as a virtue. He says, let me explain. Actually, I'll let Budzisiewski's explanation explanation do do the, the trick here. This is an explanation that involves three steps, and it's from the illusion of moral neutrality. Number one, tolerance is a virtue. Now, a virtue is a behavioral disposition that lies between the extremes of deficiency and excess. I think Aristotle actually had a, the, the, the virtue of the, the, the mean. So on, on one end of the, the, the spectrum, you have cowardice. On the other end, you have recklessness. Right in the middle, though, is the virtue of... What would it be? Steadfastness or courage? (laughs) I guess courage would be the one there. Anyway, despite the messiness in its application today, authentic tolerance is a virtue through which one puts up with something in order to, in the words of Budzuski, either prevent graver evils or advance greater goods. Thus, for instance, we may tolerate someone voicing a wrong opinion because suppressing it could, one, lead to more further, further, more insidious suppressions of free speech, or two, could eliminate the chance for truth to shine through when pitted against error. According, according to Budges, Budges, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this poor guy's name and still not saying it right, Budzizuski, the extremes should to be avoided in exercising tolerance are soft-headedness. In other words, putting up with something we should suppress and narrow-mindedness, which is suppressing something we should put up with. Secondly, the virtues are interdependent. A tradition that traces back to Thomas Aquinas holds that all of the virtues are dependent on each other. 
The professor explains, for every moral virtue depends on practical wisdom. Hence, if practical wisdom is impaired, then every moral virtue is impaired. But on the other side, practical wisdom depends on every moral virtue. Hence, if any moral virtue is impaired, practical wisdom is impaired. So it follows then that through practical wisdom, a flaw in any moral virtue entails a flaw in every other. So to summarize, practical wisdom refers to prudence. That's the virtue of determining the right course of action in each situation. And if one is missing this virtue, then one cannot know how to properly perform virtues such as tolerance in a balanced manner. And vice versa. If one doesn't know how to be properly tolerant, or for that matter, just temperate or just, then it means that person is not prudent. Number three, people aren't being formed in the virtues. I liked this one. A big problem in society today is that the virtue of tolerance is often isolated and promoted apart from traditional virtues such as justice, temperance, courage, and of course, prudence. And the result is a society populated by many people who extol tolerance but lack the wisdom necessary to avoid the extremes of soft-headedness and narrow-mindedness described above. Those who fall into the latter extreme of suppressing what should be put up with are the so-called tolerant people who are actually intolerant. And the professor warns we cannot compensate for the collapse of all our virtues by teaching tolerance and letting the rest go by, as some educators and social critics seem to think. The only cure for moral collapse is moral renewal on all fronts simultaneously. And Daniel Gladier says we have a lot of work to do. Now, there are a couple things I really like about this. Number one, I like the idea that it, it has us focusing on virtues, which, which to me can also be described as principles. Now, virtues and principles, I think, go hand in hand. But here's, here's the big difference that, uh, that I have understood now for some time, and, and I see this playing out before me today. There's a difference between issues and principles. And when a society is in decline, would you care to guess what they tend to focus on above all else? If you said issues, you would be correct. In fact, part of the issues that we focus on tends to be personalities. And I, I look, I enjoy scrolling through Twitter. I, I love to see some of the wisdom, and there is some real wisdom. There are, you know, Twitter can be a place of, of great bitterness and, and gotcha-ism, and, and there's, there's definitely a rabid sort of uh, person out there, you know, that they may or may not have a blue check mark, but they just love being on Twitter and, and uh, going after the world in their own way. You can block such people, and I strongly recommend it. You know, the, the idea is make Twitter work for you. But I've also found that there are people who just have a gift, a knack, for being able to, to give concise, helpful nuggets of wisdom. And those are the, those are the people are the reason that I go back day in and day out. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I'm above all the other, you know, the, the fur balls and phrase that everybody else is getting into. And sometimes I see a particularly good zinger and I laugh. Some of the best memes that I've seen of late have been on Twitter. Some of them are a bit spicy to share in a family setting. But bottom line is, I want to make it work for me, so I cut out the stuff that brings negativity into my life, and, and I want to define this, okay, because it's not just, well, someone disagreeing with me may be negativity. I'm okay with being disagreed with. And I mean, yeah, if you disagree with me, if you disagree with what I'm sharing, I don't, I, I don't lose sleep over it. 
In fact, actually, I take it as a, as a compliment when someone has the, what is it, the, the chutzpah? I don't know. <laughs> they have the, the ability to just say, hey, you know what? I don't know if I believe that. Because that means you're actually thinking for yourself. And that really is kind of my prime directive. Clear, independent thought, even if it means that you and I don't have to see eye to eye. I know this sounds incredible to some people, but uh, you know what? In my mental universe, people are not required to agree with me. You don't have to agree with me for me to understand and have a clear sense of right and wrong. And I believe that's the case because each of us is at a different point in our journey to, you know, find the truth, to, to find our way out of the misinformation fog. So if you question things and if you are willing to, if you're willing to look more in the direction of principles, I think you're going to find more substance than if you simply fixate on the people and personalities. And unfortunately, Twitter's very big on on people and personalities. Celebrities, politicians, oh, did you hear what this politician said or what this politician did? And there's plenty of good gaffes. And yes, I enjoy them as well sometimes. But if you're a person who's serious about knowing who you are and what you stand for, at some point you've got to reject what really amounts to gossip and just, you know, titillating facts. I, I think there's a, there's another fancier word for this, ephemera. That's uh, little factoids, little distractions that, that really don't matter. And for the most part, social media, and that would include Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these other things that take so much of our time. They're this great ephemera machine in that they keep us there. And it, trust me, any person who, uh, I, I don't mean to be indelicate, but if you've sat in the bathroom for hours or, well, for, for a lot longer than you thought, scrolling through, you know, a social media feed, the great ephemera machine has its hooks in you. The key is to start making the distinction between what matters and what doesn't. And the reason more people don't do this is because it does take effort. To understand the principles and practices of liberty, for instance, that takes effort. That means not just sitting there and passively absorbing whatever's com- absorbing whatever's coming at you out of the screen from Netflix or Hulu or whatever. It's time to pick up some books. It's time to ask questions. It's time to have meaningful conversations. You start doing that and you'll start seeing the world a lot more clearly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are determined to think for themselves. To not sit back and just be told, this is what you must think, this is what you must consider, but to actively take ownership for your own worldview. Which means at some point you and I are going to be parting company because you will have outgrown me and the need for me to, you know, offer, you know, points of view for your consideration. You're going to be out there finding it on your own. But that's kind of the point. I don't want to create a large segment of followers that will just, you know, you know, follow me through society. I want to create leaders. 
which means that uh, you and I will be, you know, parting company somewhere down the road. We'll part as friends. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not trying to kick you out the door. I'm just saying it's a compliment to me that you will be thinking on your own. I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. So I want to take a minute here, and I want to go back in time and just spend a few moments talking about uh, one of the most remarkable events that I've ever had the privilege of, of attending. And it was what happened eight years ago today at Bundy Ranch. Now, some people are familiar with this, particularly my listeners in southern Utah will remember that, oh, that's right, there was a, there was a little uh, tete-a-tete or something out there in the desert in Bunkerville, Nevada. And for much of the world, you know, I don't know what, uh, I don't know exactly how their perception is, but I know that if it comes from the mainstream media, it's likely an incomplete perception. So, Here's the thumbnail version. I'm not going to walk through all of the events, but Ryan Bundy and I first became friends, I think, about 16 years ago. I met him when I first moved to Cedar City, Utah, and I met this young, earnest young man who was, uh, I believe he was running for for some political office. Could have been county commission, could have been, you know, state legislature. I don't remember. All I know is uh, Ryan was, uh, was, he was a good guy and still is. But I met him and uh, was was impressed. I thought, man, this this guy, he's I mean, he is a cowboy through and through, a no nonsense, uh, not not given. He's, he's not the kind of person who's given to using fancy words and you know using pseudo scientific language to impress the people around him. You know, he's pretty much you know straight and to the point. Some people find that offensive. I for one did not. Nonetheless, I became friends with Ryan and with another group of friends. We learned a lot about uh, liberty. We basically created a support group for liberty. And it was one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. Because what we found was, as we met and we took the time to talk with each other about uh, the principles and the practices of liberty, it wasn't just a matter of, well, we started to get smarter and we knew more. Our understanding increased, but there was something else that happened. And, and it was very hard to, to understand at the time, but several of us commented on this through the, the years that we met. And there was a period of time. I mean, look, it sounds like something out of a spy novel. Yes, in the early morning hours, we would meet and we would, uh, we would talk about uh, what was going on. And, uh, you know, it was like a clandestine meeting in this warehouse district. <laughs> and, and we would get together every other week. Here's where it was remarkable, though. Every time we got together, our meeting started with a prayer. And I mean a very sincere prayer saying, God, we want to make a difference in our communities, in our homes, in our state. We want to make a difference, the right kind of difference. Will you help us do that? And as we continued to meet and as we continued to, to build one another's understanding, we could feel this sense of purpose distilling on us. And I, I don't mean to say suddenly we were chosen and we were the best people I don't think any of us really understood what that meant. But there was something more than just a bunch of buds getting together to talk about freedom. Woo! It was, there, there, was, there was a sense of divine purpose to it. And, and again, I don't think any of us really knew what that meant. But eight years ago today, April 12th, 2014, 
that group of friends traveled to Bundy Ranch where the BLM had uh, been coming in to, uh, to take away their, their cattle, had come in to deprive them of their, their herd of cattle over a dispute over grazing fees. But they hadn't just come with the idea that, well, we're here to take your cattle. They came with a 200-man militarized task force. They set up what looked like a military compound. Hundreds of armed men, 200 armed men, vehicles that traveled like they were driving through Fallujah, Iraq, you know, at top speed, lights and sirens going and, and sharpshooters on every hilltop. And it was it was the most incredible thing. It was it was like traveling to a demilitarized zone or to a foreign country under a military uh, dictatorship just to go out there into that area where where the Bundy Ranch was. You could feel the tension there. And so this group of friends traveled down to Bunkerville, and we met with the Bundy family, particularly with Ryan and with Ammon. We went there to lend spiritual support. And that's why I give you the the preface of, you know, our, our friendship was based on more than just waving the flag and, you know, chanting together. We really had a strong sense that uh, that God was at work in our lives. And so what I want to share with you is just a very quick observation here that uh, when we went to Bundy Ranch, we went there to meet with and to pray for the Bundy family. None of us took guns with us that day, which was kind of an interesting thing because all of us had concealed carry permits, had been carrying our firearms for years. It's not like we were, you know, strangers to, to you know, carrying guns, but all of us at some level felt... Uh, some kind of constraint from within not to take it. I can tell you for me personally, I can't speak for everybody else, but for me personally, the decision that I made was, look, I knew that uh, things were pretty tense down there. I'd been down there a couple of days before with another friend and and could see, you know, every little road, every little track was posted. Do not enter here. This is, this is off limits. It's shut down. And there were trucks, or I should say SUVs with men with rifles sitting on every hilltop within sight. And if you went onto one of those tracks, man, they were right there, you know, to basically preach to you from the gospel of do what we say or else. But in my mind, I felt like if I'm gonna, if I'm going to go where there is danger, I just made the decision, God, you're going to have to be my protector. And it was interesting how many of our friends showed up that day with that same kind of understanding. And we uh, we went, we met with Ryan, we met with Ammon. Um, the most remarkable events that took place that day were not the standoff that took place at the highway overpass, but rather a prayer that was offered early that morning out there in a field near the ranch house. And when I tell you there was a sense of tension and, and just intensity, I don't even have words to convey it. All I can say is there was just no doubt in our minds that there was something very significant playing out there in the Nevada desert, and it wasn't just about a rancher who didn't want to pay for grazing his cattle. There was a sense that something extremely historic was taking place. And I came to understand that day at a very personal level that the fight for liberty is God's fight. Now, by that, here's what I mean. I mean that God stands with and strengthens those who call on him with humility. And the biggest takeaway that I took away from that day was, for far too long, I tended to lean on the arm of the flesh to get the job done. I know every one of uh, that circle of friends, when we came back, 
you know, had to think about why do I strap my gun on each day? You know, my concealed carry weapon, (laughs) because each of us knew after that day exactly where the authentic power to preserve liberty is found. And I know that for some people, this message may not resonate and it's okay. It's not important that you agree with me. But I got to speak the truth. And, 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 and the truth is this. This is what I learned. No effort to advance or to defend the cause of liberty will prosper without the help of divine providence. And it's not because God is greedy and he's going to withhold that help because, you know, you got to do what I say before, you know, before you get any help. It's, it's because we have to be, we have to understand that this is the greatest gift that he can give. But it's a gift that only comes to those who are willing to live up to what it entails to be free people. Now, when I say it was a life-changing day, I I say that in the sense that uh, for me and for that circle of friends who were there, none of us were the same. Something changed, not just in our hearts, but but in our our character that day. And I think for for the good... And what I'm going to suggest is if you're a person who looks around you and you see that, oh my goodness, freedom is is in danger, you know, it looks like there are people actively trying to stamp it out, I wouldn't disagree with you. All I'm asking you to consider is whether the, the help of divine providence is what we need to be calling upon, and I mean humbly calling upon, to get the relief that we seek. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors. Uh, Kendall Whiting has been uh, on board with me now for quite some time. I'm very grateful for him and, and I'm grateful for what he is doing to help people become better prepared to weather whatever storms may be headed our way. And here's here's the thing. Whether you have you know, vast amounts of food storage or whether you're just getting started, there's no better time to prepare than right this second. Okay, even if you feel like, well, I'm pretty late to the game. I don't know if it's going to make a difference. It does, but you just got to be consistent in putting aside food for a rainy day. Now, anything that you see on the website is in stock. Yes, prices are going higher. This is true of everything. But for the time being, there still are plentiful stores of food storage available. Please take advantage of it. Look at the website. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on life-saving food. You'll see everything from simple starter packs to, you know, full-on, uh, you know, full-year supply for a family of four. The sky's the limit. But the window of opportunity within which we can act is not going to remain open indefinitely. And I don't want that to sound any more ominous than, oh, wow, you know, so you're saying this is kind of urgent. I really think it is. You'll actually be talking a little bit more about why that's urgent here coming up. But lifesavingfood.com, please check them out. Let him know you heard about it on this show. Let him know that his message reached you. Now, if you're still wondering why opposing lockdowns was the moral and proper thing to do, I would encourage you to look no further than what's happening in Shanghai. In fact, I have the latest, uh, latest piece from Jordan Schachtel on his dossier substack. 
A full embrace of public health, the Shanghai catastrophe is the end result of lockdown ideology. And it's brutal. You know, I, I almost hesitate in telling you, you should probably check out some of the videos coming out of Shanghai. And I still think maybe you should. But I, I say that with the understanding that, ooh, man, there, there is some, there's some very hard reality to be faced there. And if you want to see what it's like for people to be locked down to the point where they are very literally losing their minds. I mean, there, there are videos that are starting to come out of people jumping from high-rise buildings and so forth because they just can't take it. I don't urge you to watch those videos. It will, it will hurt your soul to see them. I won't urge you to watch the videos of their pets being taken away and clubbed to death because the owner tested positive for COVID. But if you want to see how brutal and the furthest end to which lockdown mentality can be taken, Shanghai is a pretty good example of that right now. Jordan Schachtel says, highlight the hundreds of millions of victims of communism and its advocates are known to try to rebut the evidence by claiming, well, real communism has never been tried. Now, as an extension of this debate, he says the global public health cartel, whose advocates relentlessly pursue totalitarian solutions to attempt to stop a virus from spreading, are known to defend their lockdown advocacy by claiming that real lockdowns have never been tried. But when faced with the reality that lockdowns have failed everywhere they have been tried, the lockdown advocates push back, claiming, well, such lockdowns are not up to their Pyongyang standard of authoritarian rule. But he says in Shanghai, however... We are finally witnessing the most ferocious lockdowns to date, the full Pyongyang standard. And this utopian hard lockdown dreamed about for two years by the likes of Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, the World Health Organization, Ivy League Academia, and the rest of the global public health cartel is now playing out in Shanghai. Now, to these individuals and groups, the horrific tyranny we saw in Wuhan, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and elsewhere around the world were a good start, but still not tyrannical enough for their liking. I mean, if you remember Dr. Fauci back in uh, March of 2021 praising Australia, oh, the best thing we can do to really get control over replication of the virus is follow Australia's lockdowns. Bill Gates pointing to Australia. Yeah, you know, they did a great job and, you know, saying they, they handled the health and economic challenges of the pandemic well. Well, Fauci and Gates finally got what they wanted in Shanghai, and just as expected, the result of the Pyongyang standard has come in the form of unprecedented human carnage. Carnage, rather. This is the headline here from MSN. Everyone is starving. Shanghai close to civil unrest under strict COVID lockdown regime. I saw actually some uh, photos of people who'd taken their empty refrigerator and just put it out on the balcony of their high-rise apartments, open, facing the world, a testament to we have no food. I actually read an account of an American living in Shanghai who said, we're seriously locked down to our rooms. No one may leave their apartment without permission. And there were a couple of people, he was one of them, who were accepted as volunteers to go and grab the food that the government would bring to their apartment building and then distribute it to the other members of the, of the, the other uh, residents there of the building. But he says, you know, they'll drop the food off at 8 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it's not until 3 in the afternoon in 80-degree temperatures. There's meat sitting there in that shipment, spoiling And they have to dress up in the full, you know, hazmat kind of suit before they can go and get the food and take it to to people. 
but they're absolutely cut off. You do not leave without permission. Jordan Schachtel says, as I previously discussed in the the dossier, tens of millions of people in the Shanghai metro have been locked in their homes for several weeks. The freedom of movement entirely eliminated. Shanghai residents are only allowed to go outside to take a COVID test, and a positive test means they're hauled off to COVID detention camps for an indefinite period of time while the state sends agents into their homes to murder their pets. That's not uh, hyperbole. The videos are out of them beating people's dogs to death. Well, we don't have to care for them. It's beyond brutal. There have been countless reports of suicide, starvation, mass civil unrest, and other forms of hell on earth for those trapped inside Shanghai. He says many under lockdown are facing impending starvation, as China's top-down tyranny is, unsurprisingly, struggling to replace market forces in its attempt to micromanage food deliveries to an immobilized population. I think one of the more striking videos that I've seen recently is um, people screaming. Hundreds of people screaming from their apartment balconies into the night. I mean, it's, I, it's, it's pretty hellish. I mean, it does not sound like, you know, they're, they're not screaming about how great communism is. They're screaming about how miserable their lives are. And, and, and the technology. There, there are little robot uh, um, dogs walking around with loudspeakers, urging people, stay inside, do as you are told. There was a drone. Somebody, somebody wandered out on their balcony, and this drone comes flying by, and the drone is telling them, in Chinese, control your soul's urge to be free. I mean, it's, it's like something out of a Philip K. Dick novel. Really crazy stuff. Jordan Schachtel says, even worse, these shutdowns haven't achieved the stated purpose of the lockdowns, which is stopping the spread of COVID-19. Now, weeks into the lockdown, China continues to register a massive amount of COVID cases. On Monday, they reported a record high number. But as you might guess, Chinese Communist Party authorities are not phased whatsoever by the human carnage they've manifested. In media appearances on Monday, CCP leaders took to doubling down on the measures most admired by the public health cartel. They remain tethered to zero COVID fanaticism, defiantly declaring that living with the virus remains off the table. And he has a great quote from China People's Daily, as reported by Tracking People's Daily. At one point, Liang said that faced with the Omicron variant, some countries opted for the policy of lying flat, allowing the virus to infect people, causing great harm to the lives, health, and social production. China, on the other hand, adheres to dynamic zero COVID, and its socialist system has a strong ability to organize and mobilize, which along with the support of the people, scientific tools, and the experience of fighting the epidemic will help it ensure the success of zero COVID strategy. In other words, China has fully embraced the public health ideology, and notably, none of its top Western advocates have taken to celebrating the scene in Shanghai, which amounts to the culmination of their utopian vision. It's worth your time to take a look at the the article. I've got it linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. He's got a number of tweets, including videos, that you can check out for yourself. I don't know that uh, all of them are graphic, but I'm going to tell you, it's, it's painful to see some of them, particularly, you know, pets being bludgeoned to death. This is, this is some really inhumane stuff, not to mention what's being done to the humans themselves. Watch at your own risk. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
And we are back. Hey, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com is one of my sponsors. And if you live in southern Utah, you are very fortunate to have a wonderful store at your disposal. It's actually been in operation since 1984. Still family-owned. It's, I think it's changed ownership three times now. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. But if you or someone you know is into the sewing arts or maybe into quilting or embroidery or you just need any of those supplies or training, this is the place I would send you. They not only sell the very best machines, but they also uh, service what they sell and even what they don't sell. If you have a sewing machine that's on the fritz, take it to them. They can fix it for you. And they can teach you how to use it. And again, I I don't really, I don't want to sound like, you know, and this is an important thing to have because someday you're going to be unable to buy any clothes in the store. But let's face it, we are seeing some pretty phenomenal breakdowns in our supply chains. And economically, there's there's a lot of upheaval that uh, we're going to be talking about here in a few minutes. Seems to me that a good backup would be to have the capacity to either repair your own clothing or in a pinch to be able to sew more of your own clothing. Just a little something to think about. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. I've got a link in the show notes. Check them out. And please let them know that their message has reached your ears. So the gaslighting, the outright lies that are taking place. What was the thing I said? Oh, it was Jen Psaki yesterday talking about how, well, uh, the uh, March inflation numbers are going to come out today. And uh, the warning was, this. you know it's bad when the people who are in charge can't spin it in a positive way. All they could do is try to deflect the blame. She kept calling it the Putin price hike. Well, yes, the Putin price hike means we're going to see extraordinarily higher inflation. And this means both measures, including the ones that exclude energy and food, which is where we've seen some very noticeable uh, hikes in prices, but also those measures that include food and fuel. And look, I get it. It it makes me nervous, too. There's a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach every time I go to the grocery store. Every time I go to gas up my car, I'm just like, wow, we are seeing something play out in front of us that is is just remarkable. And not in a good way. Like, yay. (laughs) But I'm also very concerned about the the lack of, of... solid information that is available and 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 the gaslighting over ukraine for instance so it's all putin's fault it's the putin price hike i'm sorry putin is whatever he is but the same people who are telling us that he's the devil and that he's the cause of all of our our woes and he's the next hitler and all this stuff these are the same people who are telling us get the jab or lose your job these are the same people who are were cooking the numbers in covid deaths These are the same people advocating your children, two to five years old, need to be masked no matter where they go. They're not trustworthy. I want to go for a minute to uh, to the concept of, of the misinformation regarding the war in Ukraine. Caitlin Johnstone says, if it feels like you're being manipulated, it's because you are. And she's got some pretty strong medicine here. She says, if you've got a gut feeling that your rulers are working to control your perception of the war in Ukraine, it's safe to trust that feeling. If you feel like there's been a concerted effort from the most powerful government and media institutions in the Western world to manipulate your understanding of what's going on with this war, it's because that's exactly what has been happening. If you can't recall ever seeing such intense media spin about a war before, it's because you haven't. If you get the distinct impression that this may be the most aggressively perception-managed and psyop-intensive war in human history, it's because it is. If it looks like the Silicon Valley platforms are controlling the content 
that people see to give them a perspective on this war that's wildly biased in favor of the U.S. narrative, it's because that is indeed the case. By the way, everything that she's asserting here, she links to stories that will back up what she's saying. Now, that doesn't mean, then you're, therefore, you have to believe. But I would encourage you, if you want to fact check, do it. She's inviting you. Check it out for yourself. She says, if it seems like a suspicious coincidence that Russiagate manufactured mainstream content, consent rather, for all the same shady agendas we're seeing ramped up like now, now like a Cold War brinkmanship against Moscow or Internet censorship or being constantly lied to by the mass media for the greater good, it's because it's a mighty suspicious coincidence. She says, if it seems weird to you that so many self-styled leftists are responding to this war by fanatically supporting the extremely dangerous, unipolarist, geostrategic agendas of the most powerful empire that's ever existed, that's because it is weird. Really, really, really weird. By the way, to punctuate that point, she has you know a tweet that someone had sent out with the, these photo shoots of uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky. And, and I mean, these, this is like he's doing a modeling photo shoot. Oh, look, here he is looking pensive on the steps of some important building. And here he is, you know, looking determined and two delightful sides of the same coin. I mean, it's, it's very much being staged. She says, if it seems a bit hypocritical to you that the empire blasting us in the face all day with narratives alleging war crimes, while that same empire is imprisoning a journalist, Julian Assange, for exposing its war crimes... That's because it absolutely is hypocritical. If something looks wrong about the fact that we're about to watch a judge sign off on Julian Assange's extradition to the U.S. for practicing journalism while that same United States keeps pushing out narratives about the need to protect Ukraine's freedom and democracy, that's because it should. She says, if you're beginning to get a nagging sense that the mainstream consensus worldview is a construct manufactured by the powerful, for the powerful, and everything you were taught about your nation, your government, and your world is a lie, that's definitely a possibility worth considering. If it's starting to seem like we're all being manipulated at mass scale to think, act, and vote in a way which benefits a vast power structure that rules over us while hiding its true nature, I'd say that's a thread worth pulling. If you have a sneaking suspicion that the lies might go even deeper than that, right down to deceptions about who you are fundamentally and what this life is actually about, well, she says it's that suspicion is probably worth exploring. If you're feeling a bit like Keanu Reeves in the beginning of The Matrix, right before the veil gets ripped away, I'd recommend following the white bunny and seeing how deep that rabbit hole goes. If it has occurred to you that humanity needs to wake up from the matrix of illusion before our sociopathic rulers drive us to extinction, via environmental catastrophe or nuclear Armageddon, then she says, your notes match my own. If you believe that it's possible that these existential crises we're fast approaching may be the catalyst we need to collectively rip the blindfold from our eyes and begin moving in a truth-based way upon this earth and creating a healthy world, well, then we're on the same page. She says, if there's something in you that whispers, there's a good chance we make it, despite the long odds we appear to be facing. She says, I'll tell you a secret. I hear it too. I know this, Brian, you know, the doom and gloom is pretty strong today. And I so don't want to be spreading gloom and doom. I don't want to bring more fear, more uncertainty, more anger into anyone's life. Lord knows there's enough of that to go around. 
But at the same time, there are some very hard realities that need to be faced. And one of those hardest realities is that most of the mass media, particularly the corporate media, the legacy media, cannot be trusted to give you a clear picture of what's going on. If you want to know what's happening in the world, it's going to be on you. You're going to have to learn to trust yourself to be the kind of person who can go out there and sift fact from fiction, truth from error, lightness or light from darkness, and to to make the decisions about this is credible and this isn't. Now, see, we've been told from a very early age, but you're not good enough. What are your credentials, right? <laughs> you're not a biologist, are you? Why would you have that gender reveal party? You Neither you nor the, the parents involved here are, are biologists. You don't know whether it's going to be a girl or going to be a boy. I joke about it a little bit, but at the same time, I, I've got this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that comes when I think a little bit too hard about how much effort is being expended to prevent us from seeing reality. And I'm not just talking about, you know, my political reality, which is what I want everybody else to see. I mean reality itself. Let me ask you this. Within the last couple of years, have you ever found yourself doubting your sanity or questioning whether someone was trying to to drive you out of your mind by asserting things as, well, this is reality or this is true, that absolutely are not true? Just asking. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question, but I'd be very curious what, what the answers might be like. I know some people who are pretty solid thinkers, people who are, you know, of a good, strong constitution, and, you know, they're, they're not uh, flighty people. They don't bend every which way wherever the political winds are blowing or the philosophical winds of the day. But it seems like nearly every person that I have good, meaningful conversations with has confided that, yeah, yeah, they feel the strain too. It's, it's, it's like we are, we're being forced to question our very sanity. And maybe I'm nuts, but I think that it's by design. And I think the idea is we're, we're being told we cannot believe reality. We have to just repeat the lies that we're being told. That shows our compliance. That shows that we're being loyal, that we can be trusted to do what we're told. All I know is I've decided I'm not going to play that game. If that puts me on the margins of society, so be it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give some recognition to HSLMO.com. I've got a link in my show notes, and I'm just here to tell you that uh, these are manufacturers of new and remanufactured ammunition. It's very high quality. It's as affordable as it can be, considering, you know, how difficult it is to get a hold of certain components. And, you know, ammunition, I I don't want to sound too, uh, too apocalyptic here, but sometimes I wonder if this isn't as good as precious metals, like gold and silver, in terms of being a store of value. I know more than a few people have said, yes, I'm, you know, well stocked up on precious metals, metals, brass, copper, and lead. Because it's a commodity, and there will always be a need for it. People will uh, will trade for it. So, I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. 
if uh, part of your preparations for difficult times are to have tradable or barterable commodities, ammo is actually a pretty good commodity to have on hand. It keeps indefinitely. You know, you store it properly. Um, it's it's going to be good for generations. And HSL ammo would be a great place to go to uh, to get yourself stocked up. So how can you tell we're in trouble economically? Well, I would suggest maybe take a look at John Miltimore's latest column from the Foundation for Economic Education on why used cars are selling at higher prices right now than new cars. Why would people pay more for a used vehicle than a new one? Well, the answer seems to stem from availability. John Miltimore says, The last time I purchased a used car, it didn't turn out well. A number of years ago, I bought a used 2005 Mazda Tribute for what I thought was a screaming deal, 5900 bucks. The mileage was low and the vehicle was in pretty meticulous shape, or so I thought. Unfortunately, the engine had a small oil leak that turned into a large leak and resulted in a blown engine. Six months after I bought it, the car was shot. I was out $5,900 and was forced to downgrade to a Saturn as my commuter car. Now, he says, for me, the experience was a lesson learned. Don't invest too much money in used cars, especially of the older variety. But he says a new report, however, suggests Americans are turning to used vehicles in droves, likely out of necessity. Al Root, senior writer at Barron's, notes that surveys show many users are paying more for used cars than newer versions of the same model. Needless to say, Root says this isn't how things typically work. New cars are supposed to cost more than their used counterparts, he writes, but online car insurance marketplace Get Jerry found in a recent survey that four of the top ten best-selling cars in the U.S. cost more to buy used than new. So what gives? Why would anyone pay more for an old vehicle than a new one? And the answer appears to stem from availability. As many will tell you, at some dealerships, there were simply no new cars to be had. Hannah Frankman explained in a recent fee article, over New Year's, I purchased a car. At the dealership I bought from, there wasn't a single new car on the lot. Read that again. Not a single new car. As Frankman notes, the supply of new vehicles has been severely disrupted by a global shortage of semiconductor chips and other supply chain issues. As a result, Ford's 2021 production numbers came up short by 1.25 million vehicles. Toyota, meanwhile, was short 1.1 million. Other automobile manufacturers have experienced similar problems, and this vehicle shortage has caused serious delays for consumers. Root, riding at Barron's, says new cars typically take up to 10 months to deliver. Now, that might sound fast if you were to compare it to, say, the Trabant, the worst car in history, which had an average waiting period of 10 years. But this is in East Germany. Americans aren't accustomed to waiting months for their vehicles. As it happens, he says people who want a car right away have an alternative. Used cars can be purchased right now if car buyers are willing to pay a premium, Root explains. And this is why many used vehicles are selling at higher prices than new vehicles of the same model and why used car prices generally are up 60% from pre-pandemic levels. By the way, he's got the charts there to back it up. So here's a quick economics lesson that helps explain what's happening. Subjective value and the cost of waiting. Basic economics, writes John Miltimore, teaches a fundamental reality of the human condition, and that is scarcity. Resources are finite. There are never enough goods and services to meet human needs and wants. Printing trillions of dollars during the pandemic, as the Federal Reserve did, did not solve the problem of scarcity. 
In fact, government actions taken during the pandemic undoubtedly made the problem of scarcity worse. By disrupting production and eroding the value of the dollar, U.S. consumers are experiencing the highest inflation in decades and shortages of many goods. Not just cars and computer chips, but everything from potatoes, eggs, and avocados to garage doors, bicycles, baby formula, and more. That's why in February 2020, a fully loaded, brand new Tesla Model S performance was $112,000 if you wanted to pay that $7,000 full self-driving fee. While today, the price tag on a pre-owned Tesla 2021 model is $132,000. Now, it's true, one can pay less buying a brand new car through Tesla, but the estimated arrival is as late as October. So John Miltimore asks, does it make sense to fork over thousands of more dollars to purchase a used vehicle today rather than wait to get a brand new one at a lower price? And for many people, the answer is yes. Otherwise, they would not be making the purchase. Value is subjective, Economics teaches for some people, the cost of waiting six months for a vehicle is just too high. For others, waiting six months to get a brand new car at a lower price, that's the preferred option. But all of this explains why used cars are in such high demand right now. He says, I just hope that for people buying used cars, their experience turns out better than mine was when I purchased a lemon. Now, my wife and I bought a couple of cars in the last three months. And... Yeah, it's, it's an experience. Very bad time to be looking for, for a vehicle right now, or at least, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a bargain, you're not likely to find a real bargain. I feel like we, we, we spent more than we wanted to, but I feel like we also got a lot of vehicle for what we spent. So, you know, out of deference to the car dealerships out there, I feel for them. I want them to succeed. I want them to be able to, to provide for people, and I want them to be able to prosper We've got some very serious shortages taking place here, and and it's not getting better. In fact, I have an article linked in the show notes today. I'm going to let you discover most of this for yourself. This is from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. The title is, The Media is Ignoring These Two Events Which Could Cause Economic Collapse. Now, just saying those words, economic collapse, is going to you know get some people's pulse racing. Again, my goal here is not to, to scare you. It's not to, you know, create fear or, or anger. It's just about facing a hard reality that is fast approaching and that I don't think we can, I don't think we're going to avoid this. We are going to have to adapt and we're going to have to be brave. And if you think, oh, this is impossible, how could this be? You know, you, just by talking about it, you're bringing it on. Look, tough times come on a regular, cyclical basis. This is one of the reasons why I I identify very strongly with the fourth-turning methodology of studying history. We're right on track for a a good crisis, in fact, multiple overlapping crises that that will, will test us very much. I do happen to believe that we're up to this. We just didn't think it was going to be our turn to do heavy lifting, but I think... That's, that's exactly what's going to be required. Brandon Smith, in particular, talks about a couple of trends that he wrote about clear back in 2014. He says the first trend was the increased mention within globalist circles of something called the Great Reset. Christian Lagarde, who was, his, who was the head of the 
International Monetary Fund at the time, was suddenly throwing the phrase around in press interviews and in Q&A events at the World Economic Forum. He says, this appeared to be a rebranding of the New World Order agenda, which establishment elites have been known to mutter about in, in moments of rare honesty. But it's a concerted push toward global centralization in the face of economic and social decline within nations. The second trend was the shift of Eastern nations into a more open partnership with global banks, including the IMF's inclusion of China in the special drawing rights basket system. And in the case of Russia, Goldman Sachs becoming deeply entrenched as an economic advisor to the Kremlin. Now, the third trend was an inexplicable rush by both Chinese and Russian central banks to buy up as much physical gold as possible. And he says, to my mind, the only reason for China and Russia to buy up precious metals as a hedge against inflation and currency collapse would be to to hedge against the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. Well, I think the things might be in motion at this point to where we're going to see the destruction of the dollar. And I don't say that to scare you. I'm just telling you that right now the economic uh, wheels are in motion and the consequences are starting to play out. It doesn't look good for a nation that, uh, you know, at least officially is uh, $30 trillion in debt, but actually in the form of, uh, you know, promised payments into the future is closer to $200 trillion or more in debt. We are not in a good place. And we knew it would come to an end eventually. Turns out you and I might be around to to see what the end of the dollar and the end of our economy looks like. This is The Brian Hyde Show.